वो लोग बहुत खुशकिस्मत थे जो इश्क को काम समझते थे या काम से आशिकी करते थे हम जीते जी मसरूफ रहे कुछ इश्क किया कुछ काम किया हेलो दया दिस इज कबीर गांधी अकॉर्डिंग टू अ स्टडी पब्लिश्ड इन जनवरी 11 2020 इशू ऑफ द इकोनॉमिक एंड पॉलिटिकल वीकली ऑफ इंडिया about 52% of brahmins and 24% of forward castes practice untouchability in india even for educated brahmins and forward caste who have received some sort of post graduate education 48% and 27% respectively practice untouchability 30% of rural india and 20% of urban india practices untouchability by religion 30% of hindus 18% of muslims 23% of sikhs and 35% of jains practice untouchability as a particular social group indian buddhist at 1% practice the least untouchability which is not surprising given that b r ambedkar had announced hinduism along with his several thousand dalit followers and converted to buddhism by region for those of you who are interested central plains of india often referred to as the hindi heartland is also the heartland of untouchability in india with 49% of people living there practicing untouchability in some form or the other and i belong to that an infamous hindi heartland i, I as, as you may know i come from bihar For those of you who are wondering why I have picked up the issue of untouchability in today's podcast, let me tell you that I finally was able to lay my hands upon a book that I have been extremely eager to get since the first time I read its reviews flashed through, you know, several reputed international media organizations. Yeah, I mean, you guessed it right. I'm talking about the Pulitzer Prize winner Isabella Wilkerson's latest book, Cast: The Lies That Divide Us, published by Penguin. Now, I got to admit I have breezed through only one third of the book so far but it is absolutely unputdownable it is like a story woven through three cultures and uh, and for somebody as uh, no novice as me uh, i mean i it, the, the stories in it the, the true stories in the true accounts of people in it are, are just are just heart wrenching to say the least You, you just can't put down the book as I said. Uh, Wilkerson invites you to see caste as the deeper psychological process that defines 400 years of racism, what she calls America's caste system, drawing a comparison with two other such structures, the tragically accelerated, chilling and officially vanquished caste system of Nazi Germany. and the lingering millennia long caste system you guess it right of india in each of these cases one group sets out to stigmatize and dehumanize another to justify a state of lasting domination wilkerson says now she has also itemized eight pillars of caste in her book of which until now i've only read through four so full disclosure that she says range from assertions of divine will and natural law to strategies of terror as enforcement and cruelty as a means of control 
if face i beg your pardon if race is the language in which americans have been trained to see humans she argues that caste is its grammar and enduring structure wilkerson also adds and i quote from the book a caste system is an artificial construction a fixed and embedded ranking of human value that sets the presumed supremacy of one group against the presumed inferiority of other groups on the basis of ancestry and other immutable traits traits that would be neutral in the abstract but are ascribed life and death meaning in a hierarchy favoring the dominant caste whose forebearers designed it now a caste system uses rigid often arbitrary boundaries to keep the ranked groupings apart distinct from one another and in their assigned places throughout the human history three caste systems have stood out uh, which he mentions uh, the caste system of nazi germany the lingering millennial on caste system of india and to which he adds the shape shifting unspoken race based caste pyramid in the united states each version relied on stigmatizing those deemed inferior to justify the dehumanization necessary to keep the lowest ranked people at the bottom and to rationalize the protocols of enforcement a caste system endures because it is often justified as divine will originating from sacred text or the presumed laws of nature reinforced throughout the culture and passed down through the generations as we go about our daily lives caste is the wordless wordless usher in a darkened theater flashlight cast down in the aisles guiding us to our assigned seats for a performance the hierarchy of caste is not about feelings or morality it is about power which groups have it and which do not it is about resources which caste is seen as worthy of them and which are not who get to acquire who gets to acquire and control them and who does not it is about respect authority and assumptions of competence who is accorded these and who is not quote closed many of you like myself until recently may not have known that bilkerson was the first african american woman to win a pulitzer prize for her feature reporting of the midwestern floods in 1993 which she worked when she was working for the new york times now i like to read just a couple more extracts from her book i must forewarn you these truths these true stories are too heart wrenching to handle for the week at heart so pull a box of tissue papers i must say uh let's go with the first one The townspeople of the East Texas village of Leesburg hammered a buggy axle into the ground to serve as a stake. Then they chained 19-year-old Wiley McNeely to it. They collected the kindling they would use for the fire at the base of his feet. Despite his protestations of innocence in connection to the white girl they said he had assaulted. 500 people gathered that fall in 1921 to see Wiley McNeely burned to death in front of them. But first, the leaders of the lynching had to settle a matter of importance. The leaders drew lots to see who would get which piece of McNeely's body after 
they had burned him alive. Figure out the body parts which they regarded as the choicest souvenir. This they did in front of the young man facing his final seconds on this earth. There, chained up and left to hear of the disposition of his fingers and ears to the men who had kidnapped him outside of the law. The leaders debated this in front of 500 people who had come to watch him die and who were impatient for the festivities to begin. After the men had decided and after all was settled, they lit the match. Uh, moving on to the next extract, uh, Wilkerson explains, and I quote this from her book again, that lynchings were part carnival, part torture chamber, and attracted thousands of onlookers who collectively became accomplices to public sadism. Photographers were tipped off in advance and installed portable printing presses at the lynching sites to sell to lynchers and onlookers like photographers at a prom. They made postcards out of the gelatin prints for people to send to their loved ones. People mailed postcards of the severed, half-burned head of Will James atop a pole in Cairo, Illinois in 1907. They sent postcards of burned torsos that looked like the petrified victims of Vesuvius. Only these horrors had come at the hands of human beings in modern times. Some people framed the lynching photographs with locks of the victim's hair under glass if they had been able to secure any. One spectator, one spectator wrote on the back of his postcard from Waco, Texas in 1916, This is the barbecue we had last night. My picture is to the left with the cross over it, your son Joe. This was singularly American. Even the Nazis did not stoop to selling souvenirs of Auschwitz, wrote the Times magazine many years later. Lynching postcards were so common a form of communication in turn of the 20th century America that lynching scenes became a burgeoning sub-department of the postcard industry. By 1908, the trade had grown so large and the practice of sending postcards featuring the victims of mob murders had become so repugnant that the U.S. Postmaster General banned the cards from the mails. But the new edict did not stop Americans from sharing their lynching exploits. From then on, they merely put the postcards in envelopes. In downtown Omaha, they started a bonfire and readied it for Will Brown. The newspapers had advertised the lynching in advance and as many as 15,000 people gathered on the courthouse square that day in September 1919. So many people that one cannot make, so many people that one cannot make out the faces in the human sea in a wide shot taken from above. These thousands of dots on a gelatin print, fathers, grandfathers, uncles, nephews, brothers, teenagers, were of one mind, had fused into an organism unto itself, intent on a single mission, not only to kill, but to humiliate, torture, and incinerate another human being, and together to breathe in the smoke of burning flesh. Two days before, a white woman and her boyfriend had said that a ma black man had molested her when the couple were out on the town. 
no one alive knows what happened for sure and there were questions even then resentment had been building against the influx of black southerners arriving north during the great migration and will brown a packing house worker was the man the sheriff arrested there was no app investigation no due process that day the mob looted guns from local pawn shops and general stores and fired on the courthouse where brown had been detained before they could even get to him the mob killed two of their own a bystander and a fellow rioter with their ragged gunshots they set the courthouse on fire to force the sheriff to hand brown over to them they cut the water hoses to keep the firefighters from putting out the blaze and then the mayor tried to appeal to the mob the leaders put a rope around his neck and inflicted injuries that put him in the hospital the leaders of the mob pulled brown from the rooftop of the courthouse where the courthouse workers had escaped from the fire and where the prisoners had then had been taken then the people in the mob began the task of which task for which they had gathered first they stripped will brown and those up front fought each other to beat him they hoisted him half conscious onto a lamp post outside the courthouse then they fired bullets into his dangling body cheering as they fired and it was from these gunshots that the coroner said brown died they burned his body in the bonfire they had made on the courthouse square then they tied the body to a police car and dragged the corpse through the streets of omaha they cut the pieces of rope they had used to hoist him and these they sold as keepsakes keepsakes for people's display cabinets and fireplace mantles the photographers on the scene captured the lynchings from different angles and produced postcards of the men in business suits and teenagers in newsboy hats posing as if at a wedding reception crowding into the frame above the charred torso sparks of fire amid the ash and in image they would send to cousins and in-laws and former neighbors around the country a 14 year old boy was helping his father at his printing plant across the street from the courthouse in the middle of the riot the boy's name was henry fonda and he would lead omaha when he grew up and make a name for himself as a leading man in hollywood that evening in 1919 against the hollers of the mob and the man hanging from a lamp post and the cinders of the bonfire fonda and his father locked the plant and drove home in silence it was the most horrendous sight i have ever seen he would say years later when he was an old man the decades had not swept the ash from his memory it was perhaps no coincidence that he would appear in many movies in which he was the moral voice calling for a life to be spared in the 1943 film the oxbow incident about vigilante violence it is fonda's character who wants a bloodlusting mob man just naturally can't take the law into his own hands and hang people without hurting everybody in the world with that friends i like to take you leave and get back to reading the book hopefully i will have finished the book by this time tomorrow and i may be able to share a few more accounts from the book with you in part 2 of this article
दिस इज कबीर गांधी साइनिंग ऑफ वो लोग बहुत खुशकिस्मत थे जो इश्क को काम समझते थे या काम से आशिकी करते थे हम जीते जी मसरूफ रहे कुछ इश्क किया कुछ काम किया शुक्रिया